From Capital Analytics, I'm Abby Maloney, and this is Invest Insights. Every week, we bring you perspectives, business advice, and more from the leading executives, entrepreneurs, and investors who are building, diversifying, and leading the way in the country's fastest-growing metro markets. Real leaders, real insights, right now. Welcome to Invest Insights. I'm Abby Maloney. I'm joined today by Carol Post, the Administrator for Development and Economic Opportunity for the City of Tampa. Carol, thank you so much for joining with me today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. We're going to talk a lot about how the economy has been changed uh, forever due to the pandemic and look at at those new norms, uh, the new business strategies, new operations. But before we get there, I want to ask you, what are some new personal norms that you started during the pandemic that you know you're going to carry with you into this post-pandemic landscape? Any new hobbies or interests, uh, ways of organizing yourself, technologies? Well, I think we're all, it's a great question. I think we're all obviously have been exposed to a lot of new technologies that, uh, have reshaped the way we interact with our, our colleagues and, and those outside of our organizations. I think for me, uh, and maybe others that have, have interacted, the Zoom calls and the, the, the digital engagement has been streamlined, but it also sort of has, has jam-packed days together. So you, there's sort of no break, whereas you used to in kind of a normal environment, you'd have a break between meetings. But now Zoom calls can just literally go from one end to the next. And what I've tried to do is incorporate some non-work-related aspects into the day and calendaring them. So um, the calendar becomes kind of my activity Bible. And uh, whether it's before work and even after work, you know, calendaring in a run or something like that makes me sort of feel more committed to it. So those are some things I hope will stick for uh, the the post-COVID environment. Between two Stanley Cups and a Super Bowl win, the term Champa Bay couldn't be uh, further from the truth. In what ways have these wins translated to economic boon for the city? And how is Tampa looking to leverage this national exposure to benefit tourism, hospitality, and the sports industry overall? Great, great question. We love talking about the success of the Tampa Bay region around our uh, sports franchises. It's been remarkable. You know, those wins by sports franchises of that caliber cannot be underestimated in terms of their economic impacts. In addition to bringing the national and in many cases global recognition to our city, they also foster really a a unique sense of civic pride. And that level of pride and passion, you can sense it around the city and outside the city. And the heightened awareness and the visibility, it, it attracts visitors. Uh, business relocations, individuals, families that really want to be a part of something that's positive and exciting. And I think the numbers reflect this. Uh, Tampa's growing at a really rapid pace. Mm. Its population has increased uh, more than 20% since the last census counts. We've got a lot of data on that. And those trends are are not stopping. And frankly, we, we really plan to leverage Tampa Bay and that brand and kind of join it with our our already friendly and welcoming uh, spirit here to continue to promote tourism and hospitality and drive visitors and businesses that want to be part of of an enthusiastic and frankly a a championship location. Doesn't hurt to have the the celebrity factor involved, the Tom Brady effect and and whatnot, but um, we're really going to capitalize that. And I think just having a community and regional partners that are all aligned 
you know, the sports franchises are a great win, but really what the win is, is that our city is bonded together across so many organizations, whether it's our Visit Tampa Bay organizations, our sports authority, hotel and motel associations, our chambers of commerce, um, our convention center. We really work closely every day to capitalize and bring a unified effect to recruitment um, to the city. Now that it seems we are finding ourselves in an ever more post-pandemic environment, what are the key distinctions between pre- and post-pandemic economy, and what are the ways in which the city of Tampa's economic priorities have changed to reflect this new reality? That's a good question. I think the, the biggest distinction for us from an economic vitality perspective around tourism and visitation concerns um, travel decisions. You know, a lot of people in the past, our visitation was made up from out-of-region um, populations. And so for tourists and business visitors planning events, um, knowing that a destination like Tampa Bay is so far ahead of the curve for accommodating a post-COVID environment is going to set us apart. And I think it really starts with the, the excellent sort of rigorous protections that you'll find at our Tampa airport. And then the range of outdoor events and venues and activities uh, that we have available to us uh, in the region. I think you saw a lot of this play out during Super Bowl 55. It was hmm. one of the world's largest events spanning a two-week time period. And it was mostly done in outdoor venues. It was spread across miles of riverfront attractions. And I'm not sure there's many other cities that could have pulled that off as well as we did. And um, I think that post-Super Bowl and post-COVID, having the outdoor attractions like Bush Gardens and Zoo Tampa and many other outdoor engaged environments will really help visitors, travelers, even business entities who are seeking uh, organized events to do that safely in our city. I want to circle back to the Super Bowl experience that you just mentioned. Uh, you know, we forget because the time seems to be a little bit intangible nowadays. Like, uh, did 2020 really exist? And how long ago did the vaccine comes out? But when the Super Bowl did happen, that was when the, the vaccine was still being rolled out, still wasn't uh, uh, widely available. And the city of Tampa went forward with the, uh, hosting this Super Bowl. A lot of planning went into that. Um, I'm sure uh, a lot of nerves as well. Can you tell me what it was like to plan for an event like that at such uh, an unprecedented time? And, and what were the measures that you took in place and maybe some lessons learned that you'll continue to consider for large scale events like that in the future? Yeah, it, uh, you know, we work very closely with the organizers here locally uh, and as well as representatives of the NFL. And I think for that time, these things get planned year plus in advance. So we had been working on it before COVID. And when COVID occurred, as you recall, it sort of happened in March of 2020. We thought it would all end by June or July. And as it dragged on, um, we kept forging ahead with the Super Bowl planning and kept adapting as COVID presented new challenges. And to the credit of everyone involved, even by December, there was still an uncertainty about exactly what the event would look like, how many would be would be allowed in the stadium, and what the pre and peripheral events would all be. And again, I think that was really credited to all the individuals involved and the unique assets of our city, having so many outdoor venues and that miles of river walk, which is where the NFL experience ended up 
basing its its um, attractions. All of that reflected in a successful event and was managed somewhat, you know, very 11th hour, but I think we were, we were able to demonstrate our ability to adapt and adjust as circumstances were changing and uh, ultimately pull off a very successful event. And I think one thing that will persist, as you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who were in the Super Bowl and the home team won. And so in order to celebrate that great accomplishment, we needed to identify, like the Super Bowl itself, a unique way of planning for the celebration. And we came up with our ticker tape parade being in the river. And it became a river event spread across miles of our uh, riverfront walkways and river walk. And it proved to be incredibly successful. We've continued it for the Stanley Cup championship. And it enables both the players to immerse into and be celebrated and all the members of our community to engage in that, but to do it outdoors, safely separated across miles of waterfront and, and, and do it in such a unique way that we've now, we've sort of tagged that as our trademark. And even I think years after COVID, when we are still, if we're ever allowed to ever all be back in a closed environment, we would probably, I'm sure we will still opt to have our riverfront celebration. Yeah, and that riverfront is a great asset to Tampa and uh, Tampa being on the water in general. However, it makes it vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Uh, How do these considerations for the impact of climate change guide economic decisions for the city? And how is that present in this year's uh, city budget? Um, Yeah, good, good question. As much as it is an incredible asset, it is also a challenge. And in 2020, the city appointed our first ever chief resiliency officer. And a year later, that office and that uh, uh, CRO has issued a roadmap for Tampa's long-term sustainability plan. And there's nearly 150 recommendations that we will tackle in the months and years ahead. We do that with the support of community groups and experts. Um, But these investments are reflected throughout the way we're operating now and reflect that we're taking these threats seriously. I think you see it best that our mayor has already demonstrated a significant commitment to this agenda with the PIPES program. It's something that actually was entailed in our prior year's budget. It's Tampa's largest public infrastructure plan in its history. It's a $3 billion program that'll span over probably 20 years to fund water and wastewater improvements. It's one of those things that's not very sexy, but it's a critical way to reduce climate impacts while we strengthen uh, our existing um, infrastructure and get ready for those shocks and stresses. So you will see that commitment to sustainability really integrated into all our departments and all our decision making uh, from here moving forward. And now that we find ourselves in this new landscape, what's next for the city of Tampa and the local economy? Well, I'd like to think a lot of progressive and positive things. I think despite COVID and the real challenges that it presented to our city and its residents and our businesses, um, I mean, I'm personally very bullish on Tampa and I think many, many others are. I think you see that in the new businesses that are continuing to relocate here. We had Pfizer recently relocate. We have a lot of new restaurants and locally owned businesses that are opening every day Mm. and new residents that are continuing to cause us to grow rapidly. And 
While growth is certainly our future, and it's a good one, we are realistic as well about managing that growth and ensuring that we are collaborating across advocates and experts and community groups to do that in a positive and equitable manner. Um, so I think we have nothing but a, a bright future ahead, and it won't be easy to ensure that we do this in a wise, sustainable, smart way, but I think we have all the tools in place and the, the leadership at the helm to make, uh, to make Tampa this country's next great city. Great. Well, thank you again. That's Carol Post, the Administrator for Development and Economic Opportunity for the City of Tampa. My name is Abby Malone. Carol, thank you again. You've been listening to Invest Insights. Be sure to follow, rate, and review this podcast to hear more. I'm Abby Malone. Thank you for tuning in. From Capital Analytics, I'm Abby Malone, and this is Invest Insights. Every week, we bring you perspectives, business advice, and more from the leading executives, entrepreneurs, and investors who are building, diversifying, and leading the way in the country's fastest-growing metro markets. Real leaders, real insights, right now. Welcome to Invest Insights. I'm Abby Malone. I'm joined today by Christina Renna, the President and CEO of the Chamber of Commerce of Southern New Jersey. Christina, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you so much for having me again, Abby. I'm looking forward to speaking to you about how New Jersey has adapted due to the pandemic, some new business norms, this new economy we find ourselves in that um, is very much shaped by our experiences over the past year and a half. Uh, But before we get to that, how have you personally changed or what, what have the, been the new personal norms that you started during the pandemic, whether it be hobbies or interests or uh, new technologies that you know you're going to carry with you in this post-pandemic climate? Well, it's sort of overlapping with the chamber because my personal new norm is going to Zoom and Teams to use it for not just work-related things, but connecting with family members that are may not be as local or whatever it may be. Prior to the pandemic, I never had used Zoom in my life. I didn't have it on any device. I never used Teams in my life. And so I really think it's been a blessing getting used to this technology. Um, and then just transferring it, not just, of course, professionally, you definitely see the upsides now. We're able to do this right now because of it. And before, four, four years ago, if you had asked me, three years ago, if you had asked me to do this, I would have said, not just going on a computer and doing an interview, this sounds ridiculous. So that is the one thing um, as far as technology goes. Otherwise, you know, I really enjoyed being able to read more because mm-hmm. you're home more. And that is something that I'm really trying to carve out time. I've always been a reader but I got to read a ton of books during the pandemic and I'm going to try to continue that now that we're hopefully slowly emerging out of it. What's your favorite genre? I mean, I like historical fiction, so, but I mean, I also like a good thriller. I'll do anything. The offshore wind project, Ocean Wind, has caused excitement in the region and is expected to be a significant job creator as well as a valuable source of economic development. Outside of these two factors, Why is this project crucial for the future growth and sustainability of the South Jersey region? Well, you obviously hit the nail on the head as as it relates to the two biggest issues, right? It's going to grow the economy 
the workforce and the job creation it's going to bring upwards of a thousand construction jobs. And once the project's all done, they're looking 70 to 100 full-time jobs there. But aside from that, one thing that is a consistent theme you hear from everyone in South Jersey, especially Atlantic County, is that we really need to continue to work to diversify that Atlantic County economy. Mm. And this is one thing that this project will absolutely do. These are going to be high-paying, valuable jobs that are not in gaming and hospitality. And don't get me wrong, gaming and hospitality is Atlantic County's bread and butter. But what we've learned over the years is it can't just be all about gaming and hospitality. And so Ocean Wind opens this whole new door to the quote-unquote blue economy that wasn't there a few years ago. And I really think other than the obvious benefits that you mentioned, that is really just as important, if not more important, because Atlantic County and Atlantic City's success is dependent upon making sure we're finding ways to diversify that economy. You know, you just touched upon the reliance on hospitality and tourism. And at the height of pandemic, the casinos closed for 108 days, leading to unprecedented levels of unemployment uh, throughout the region. And now South Jersey's economy, as it progressively opens, unemployment levels of, are, of course, uh, you know, getting better. But uh, within hospitality and tourism, we're still seeing a lag. Um, what successful strategies have you observed from casinos and other entities within the tourism and hospitality sectors employing to handle what has already become a very busy summer? There's clearly a crisis. It's not unique to restaurants, hospitality, gaming. It's a national crisis. But you're right in that it's affecting those specific industries much more than others. It's been really interesting and always fascinating to me to see how Atlantic City always picks itself up and comes up with innovative and creative ideas mm. um, to rebuild themselves during troubled times or help out job lookers or help out their economy. One thing we saw really in the spring was organizations like the Casino Control Commission mm. had a massive job bailout looking for veterans to fill the almost 2,000 open jobs that was open in the spring leading up to the summer season. We also, of course, saw the specific casinos like Hard Rock, like Borgata, and many others had their own job fairs looking for non-traditional employees to help fill these roles because there is a labor shortage. So why not look outside the usual suspects and kind of tap into some underrepresented communities um, to try to fix this labor shortage that we're seeing. And so it's been pretty interesting and kind of fun to watch how the casino industry in Atlantic cities, nonprofits, for-profit communities have banded together to, to work together to fix this problem that is still a problem, but at least they were all working together. And how has the chamber gotten involved to address the labor shortage? So we have something on our website. It's a job board that usually a lot of our services on our website are just, you know, from dues paying members. But we added a whole new community section with a job board and we're reaching out to our employers to say, give us all of your open, open jobs. So many of our manufacturers come to me and say, Christina, I have hundreds of jobs open right now. I cannot find people to fill them. So we're posting them on our website. We're making it open to the general public. And then we're pushing it out far and wide to our legislators here in South Jersey, to our business community, and just to rank and file 
you know, individuals, they don't have to be businesses to say, if you know someone looking for a job, here's one resource that you can tap into that really does focus on South Jersey job opportunities. You know, back in the day, people used to open the newspaper and circle what they want. That's not there anymore. So we've tried to create a home base for people to look for these job opportunities and make it a resource open to the public. Earlier this year, cannabis became recreationally legal in the state of New Jersey. And you've since spoke about the, uh, the potential economic benefits and impact that this could have. As South Jersey continues to diversify its offerings, what role do you believe the recreational cannabis industry will play in this new economy? South Jersey is perfectly positioned to be a leader in cannabis because of our agricultural nature in Cumberland County, in Salem County. We certainly have the land available to be able to grow cannabis and then provide it to providers throughout the state of New Jersey. It's very interesting to see what's going to happen. We're not going to really see any real movement on the cannabis front probably until next year. The Mm -hmm. Cannabis Regulatory Commission is doing its work now. They have a timeline that they need to complete their work that those regulations are going to guide what, what ends up happening, including how many permits are distributed to potential growers of cannabis here in New Jersey. I think there's just under 90 licenses available, but how many are going to go here in state? And again, because of the fact that we do have so much open space and farmland here, I think that we are very well positioned for that. It's going to be very interesting to see what ends up happening. Certain municipalities in South Jersey have really embraced cannabis and are really looking to maximize that economic exposure it can bring their towns, whereas others have outright banned it and said, Mm -hmm. we we don't want um, legalized cannabis here in our town of course, state law will always supersede municipal law, but they're doing things like saying we can't you know, be out in public in spaces or whatever it may be. So certain towns are embracing it. Certain towns want no part of it. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the growing of the cannabis and that kind of economic opportunity it's going to bring to the region, I think that South Jersey is, is top of the line to benefit. And all these new changes creating this new economy we find ourselves in, What's next for the chamber and the labor market overall in South Jersey? Well, what's next for the chamber is we're just going to keep continuing to help our members every way we can, continue to provide the resources as they evolve out of this pandemic, hopefully, um, and get them well positioned to continue doing business. We are seeing so many of our members are just so excited to be back out in public again, networking, reconnecting with faces they haven't seen in a year. And again, it's all about keeping that economic activity here in South Jersey while continuing to you know, further our new expanded mission of our chamber that we rolled out um, in December of 2019 to be a better community partner and definitely a more inclusive chamber to the region. And so they are priorities of ours and things that we're going to continue to push through as we move forward in time. Um, as it relates to the economy, I mean, you tackled some of the big economic development issues. Wind is huge. Um, Cannabis, of course. We have aviation is huge. Food manufacturing is growing. There's a lot of excitement here in South Jersey. And South Jersey is getting a lot of looks that maybe they didn't get in the past because people realize how much opportunity there is down here in, in the southern part of the state, how much room there is to grow and develop. And that means a lot. And so we're excited about the future of the economy here in South Jersey. Well, thank you again. That's Christina Renna, the president and CEO of the Chamber of Commerce of Southern New Jersey. 
My name is Abby Maloney. Thank you again, Christina. You've been listening to Invest Insights. Be sure to follow, rate, and review this podcast to hear more. I'm Abby Maloney. Thank you for tuning in. From Capital Analytics, I'm Abby Maloney, and this is Invest Insights. Every week, we bring you perspectives, business advice, and more from the leading executives, entrepreneurs, and investors who are building, diversifying, and leading the way in the country's fastest-growing metro markets. Real leaders, real insights, right now. Welcome to Invest Insights. I'm Abby Maloney. I'm joined today by Louis Lombardi, the Senior Vice President and Regional Commercial Executive for Fulton Bank. Louis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So we're going to be talking a lot about how the pandemic has shaped our economy to create new business norms, new business strategies, new operations that will last us into the future. But before we go there, I wanted to start by asking you, are there any new personal norms that you started during the pandemic that you'll be carrying with you into the future? Any new interests or hobbies or technologies that you're using? Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Abby, for the question. Um, Yeah. So the pandemic certainly had us do a big reset and uh, I've been wanting to spend more time reading. I have four young children, so they kind of take my free time away, (laughs) but I did get back to reading, which was great. Uh, Definitely spent more time outdoors and that's going to stick. I know we're going to do more of that. I took my my son's uh, hiking in the Adirondacks. We're going to keep doing that kind of thing. Um, and then also just in general, how I manage my time, the pandemic allowed us to really get a good handle on what a healthy balance mm. in terms of time management looks like. And I'm planning to make sure that that sticks around. Indeed. The, in PVP rounds one and two, Fulton Bank granted 10,000 loans, uh, which totaled $2 billion. In an industry where change and regulation comes slow at best, what did uh, the rapid adoption to the PPP legislation reveal to you about your bank and the industry overall? Yeah, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that uh, PPP was one of the biggest experiments in modern history of business banking. It really showed what we're capable of as an industry, uh, how quickly we can mobilize our entire workforce into a single mission. Um, how quickly we can create new processes, deploy new technology, and then train all of our employees on those processes and new technology. It also showed how important it is to have IT and data people Mm -hmm. who really understand our business. Um, So aside from being there to support millions of businesses during a time of need, uh, the industry really learned a lot from PPP. And how has the successful adaptation and execution of this program reshape Fulton Bank's business plans and focus moving forward? Yeah, sure. As a result of PPP, we got better at managing large-scale projects at the enterprise level. Uh, We learned how to leverage the skills of all the departments across the bank to get a lot of work done in a very short period of time. And we did all that while making sure that we created a positive customer experience. It also taught us when and how to leverage the skills and capabilities of third parties. Mm. Um, For a project like PPP that was so large, uh, there was just a need to to pull in certain third parties here and there uh, to make sure that we can pull it off timely, effectively, 
And uh, we got really good at, at figuring out when and how to plug in third parties. It was also a moment uh, when our culture shined through. Hmm. Uh, at Fulton, we are collaborative. We work as a team. We're inclusive. And we really needed to lean on everyone to pull it off. Um, so in short, you know, PPP, the entire experience, it's given us a lot of confidence in our ability to successfully pull off large enterprise-wide projects quickly. And that's going to serve us well in the fast-changing environment that we're in today. With the ongoing disruption to the global supply chain, uh, paired with the reopening of the economy on such a massive scale, the idea that we'll see a level of inflation and higher interest rates uh, is a real possibility. How are, are you preparing your operations as well as your clientele for these impending issues? Yeah, so I think the first part of that first in terms of how the bank is preparing our operations, um, we're always monitoring interest rate exposure, uh, where rates are moving. We have entire departments whose job it is to protect the bank from interest rate shocks. Um, but the second part of that, I'd like to focus on you know, how we're dealing with it as it relates to our clients. Um, the most important thing we can do is to know our customers really well. And that means talking to our clients about the issues that, that they're facing. At Fulton, we go through great lengths to make sure our relationship managers have the resources available hmm. to educate themselves on these industry trends. Uh, and when I say industry trends, it's across all industries. If you're talking about uh, a medical equipment manufacturer or a distribution company or a construction company, we really need to understand the trends in these industries. And then our bankers uh, can help walk our clients through what might be coming down the road. And uh, we share all this research with our clients and it helps drive conversations about you know, where their business is headed. And that's whether we're talking about inflation or supply chain issues. Um, you know, to take interest rates, for example, mm -hmm. and talking about inflation, uh, if we start talking about that, often that leads to a conversation around how we can help them hedge uh, their interest rate exposure. Sure. If we're talking about supply chain, that might lead to bulk purchasing and mm -hmm. how we can help them from a working capital standpoint. Um, so, you know, when you look at the economy today, it's really important that we stay close to our clients and discuss all the trends that we see, uh, but also listen to them. I mean, they're experiencing th these things real time. They're on the ground. And uh, we certainly have a lot to learn from them as well. In this age of reliance on digital banking and financial platforms, why are traditional banks still relevant and how do you see the banking sector continue to evolve against this backdrop? Yeah, no doubt that technology is impacting the banking business uh, every day more and more. We've all seen the obvious changes, you know, from a consumer standpoint in terms of foot traffic through the branches, et cetera. We've seen non-banks, fintech companies specifically, getting into the banking business. Um, so all of these trends are only going to continue to accelerate. Wherever we can, we're trying to leverage technology in every facet of the business. Mm. And where we see ourselves being relevant is making banking personal, um, how we build personal relationships with our clients. There's certain aspects of the banking business that's a little bit more transaction focused. And in those areas, we need to continue to leverage uh, technology-based solutions. Uh, that's only going to continue to accelerate. But where the business is less transactional, more relationship-based, uh, such as dealing with closely held businesses, we're going to continue to see high demand for traditional banking uh, services there. So to be successful, you really got to be on both sides of the equation. Uh, you got to leverage technology mm. to its fullest, but you also have to be concerned about deepening relationships 
with your client so that it is personal and not transactional. And now that we find ourselves in this new landscape, what's next for Fulton Bank and the banking industry overall? Yeah, great question. Um, when I look across the banking landscape today, um, you know, no doubt banks have done a good job in terms of providing services to all clients, but simply serving all businesses is not enough. Uh, we need to reach out. We need to find creative ways to engage with all communities so that all individuals have the same opportunities. Um, at Fulton, we have a number of efforts to move this forward in the communities that we serve. And this is a big emphasis at the bank, but I also see it across the industry as well. Secondly, you know, we've all seen an uptick in consolidation in the industry. Yes. And in the past, a regulatory environment, that would largely drive uh, consolidation. But right now, it seems that technology is driving consolidation. Um, and when you look at our industry, we're competing more and more regularly with technology companies who are getting into the banking business. And look at the banking industry over the years, uh, it's been slow to change. And the industry is going to have to do some things very differently and be willing to adapt quicker than ever before. At Fulton, we've invested significantly in systems and software, and those are just must-haves you know, these days. More importantly, we've invested in people who are technology experts who also understand the banking business. So having tech-savvy leaders within the organization, that's going to help drive our ability uh, to adapt and stay ahead of the curve. So no matter what we do, I know that at Fulton, we always take a long-term perspective. And when you have a long-term perspective, it allows you to always put the customer in the communities that you serve first in all decisions that we make across the bank. And we do this because we know if we put the customer in the communities we serve first, we'll get better results you know, over the long-term. So the other part of this is that we also believe that we always have to be reinvesting in our team. Hmm. That's training, coaching, mentoring, that old adage of, you know, happy employees make happy customers who make happy shareholders remains very true today. So, you know, our industry is going to have to adapt and adapt quickly. And uh, we have to have the right talent at the organization to uh, be successful long term. Great. Well, thank you again. That's Louis Lombardi, the Senior Vice President and Regional Commercial Executive for Fulton Bank. My name is Abby Malone. Thank you again, Louis. You've been listening to Invest Insights. Be sure to follow, rate, and review this podcast to hear more. I'm Abby Malone. Thank you for tuning in. From Capital Analytics, I'm Abby Malone, and this is Invest Insights. Every week, we bring you perspectives, business advice, and more from the leading executives, entrepreneurs, and investors who are building, diversifying, and leading the way in the country's fastest-growing metro markets. Real leaders, real insights, right now. Welcome to Invest Insights. I'm Abby Malone. I'm joined today by Tracy Dodson, the Assistant City Manager and Economic Development Director for the City of Charlotte. Tracy, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Abby. I'm looking forward to this. So this 
economy that we find ourselves in has been drastically uh, affected by the pandemic. Uh, we find ourselves with new norms, uh, and new business operations, new strategies that will be uh, long lasting into our future. But before we get into that discussion, are there any new personal norms that you started during the pandemic that you're going to be continuing with in this post-pandemic world we find ourselves in? Any new hobbies, interests, technologies, anything at all? So I will say um, there's a couple of things. One, um, just this world of flexibility, right? So we never stopped coming to the office through the pandemic, but we did find, and when I say we, more of the executive team here at the city, um, we did find a different level of flexibility, right? You take your first couple of meetings or calls from home, you transition into the office and we do the in-person portion like the middle of the day. And so I'm fingers crossed we can keep some of that going as people come back to work. The other thing that started, and I don't know if it was that we were all going home and drinking more wine to cope <laughs> or or what, but I have started walking around the office now with a really big curry bottle. Oh, good. <laughs> Staying hydrated I, is important. <laughs> I, I uh, Everybody jokes with me what's really in there, but um, it's my forced water intake um, every day where I have a couple of these. And so I'm really hydrated now, probably more so than I was pre-pandemic. <laughs> good. As of summer 2021, the Charlotte Future 2040 Comprehensive Plan was officially adopted. With the increase focused on creating more equitable communities and opportunities, how is the plan designed to address these ideals while mapping out the city's growth, and how will the city invest over the, the next 20 years? So I think the plan um, really sets Charlotte up to um, live into its priority right now, which is equitable growth. We're trying to be intentional on the front end about how we make our investments for the long term. Um, I think that it is crafted with a lens of equity in helping us set a vision for where our city is going to become a place where the residents and businesses can all thrive. Mm. Um, but I will say at the same time, the city is at a, at a inflection point with growth where we have some tough decisions we have hard conversations to have about mobility or you know schools and parks and things like that it's it's we're growing so fast which is a good problem to have but also creates its own problems mm -hmm. and so i think the plan starts to set out ways in which we can start to talk about this growth but also talk about that growth in an equitable in an equitable way i think there's still a lot of work to be done in how we make our investments. The uh, planning director and assistant city manager and I've had a lot of conversations about, you know, if you say something in the plan, how does that really translate five, 10 years from now in our investments, whether it be our infrastructure investments, whether it be things that impact our business community or our residents. Um, and so there's still a lot of work to be done. I think the first step is what's to come next, which is our unified development ordinance mm. um, with the purpose of creating some transparency for residents as well as the development community on where we are trying to go. Across the Charlotte region, housing prices continue to be on the rise in accordance with the upward trajectory of the local economy. With that in mind, what are some of the steps the city has taken on both a budgetary um, as well as a planning standpoint to protect vulnerable communities and maintain affordable housing in the current economic landscape? So I will give, I'll start with our current mayor when she came into office as mayor, um, she immediately came out of the gate, this was several years ago, with a $50 million bond for affordable housing. We followed it up 
last year with another $50 million um, bond for, for housing. And she has put housing at the forefront of the conversations. Again, this goes back to our growth and understanding what's important and trying to get ahead of things. Um, the private sector leaned in as well with raising money for affordable housing. And you know, one of the things I always praise Charlotte about is that we are a community that's built on public-private partnerships. And so a lot of times, whether it be around mobility, whether it be upward mobility or housing, homelessness, uh, our community really does lean in with the public se sector to help find solutions. And so I talked about the $50 million bonds, but then also we have 28, a little over $28 million in funding um, for FY21 to preserve almost 2,000 affordable housing units um, and protect. And so we're looking at not only what can we build, but what can we protect? And um, working closely with the private sector as well as we work through that. It's not a single tool. I think it's a lot of tools mm -hmm. um, that we have to be intentional about. In the middle of the pandemic, the city announced the Job Development Investment Grant to sustain the investment confidence in Charlotte and continue with the momentum of business growth. Now, in this seemingly post-pandemic environment, what have you seen change in regards to the businesses and as what they are seeking in terms of incentives and want to invest in the city's economy? And how is the city accommodating those needs? So I will say that the one thing one, I always call it our silver lining um, from COVID and the pandemic has been um, really bringing together the small business community. It's the first, um, last year, our first round of federal funding that we got, we did a lot of small business grants and we estimated that we touched almost 20% of small businesses in our community. And that was just the local grants, right? You had the federal money, relief money that went straight to small businesses as well. But it, what it did, it has also allowed us to create a platform called Open for Business, hmm. um, which is meant to convene, be a place of resource for small businesses. We did other innovative things, well, not to duplicate that word, innovate and innovation grants that were helping businesses pivot during the pandemic um, and think a little bit differently. And so I'm really proud of the work that we've done with small business because I think we have come out of the pandemic more united, more focused on how to protect um, small businesses and help small businesses thrive. Other incentives though, that we've talked about with medium to larger sized businesses mm -hmm. is we've looked at and we've worked with businesses on opportunity hiring grants. So when you're hiring local talent or you are, we had a, a specific one that if you were hiring somebody who had been um, displaced from COVID due to COVID from employment. And so we've looked at creative ways there to get our local people into jobs, but also incentivize companies to hire, to hire local. We still are seeing a great influx um, of out of town companies looking at Charlotte. I think a lot of companies learned in the pandemic that their employees perhaps want out of major urban areas. And we had a, obviously a big influx of residents, just single residents deciding to move to Charlotte. They can work remotely or things like that. And so I think companies are starting to pick up on that and we're seeing influx of that. For the big to medium-sized companies, our incentives have stayed the same. We haven't seen an ask for, for more. I think it's the quality of life that we've built in Charlotte and the region as a whole is what is attracting them. Um, and I think the fact that we get back to your first question, the fact that we are tackling some of the hard questions right now about our growth and trying to stay ahead of it 
is different. The one thing I will say is companies now are shifting in what we're seeing. So where it might be, you started with incentives. We just did a pitch to a company where their whole thing, their whole visit to Charlotte was about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it was really great to pitch a company on who we are based on that, not just incentives or not just real estate, um, which a lot of times pre-pandemic is is some of the conversations. They wanted to know how is our community handling those types of issues. And now that we find ourselves in this new economy, this new landscape, what's next for the city of Charlotte and the local economy? Um, I would anticipate that we are still going to see unprecedented growth. We have enormous momentum. Um, our intent and a lot of my team's daily work, for example, is still very focused on continuing that momentum. But we also have to understand that we have to continue on, as I mentioned, those hard growth questions, right? We're now, I think we're, we were pre-pandemic saying that we had 121 people moving here every day. We're now at 130 people moving here every day. Um, So I think the momentum continues. I think that we are going to see more um, companies looking from the West Coast to look towards the East Coast, which has historically been hard, you know, that we get the Northeast pretty easily and we get uh, the Midwest pretty easily, but not the West Coast. And so I think that um, we have a lot of opportunity there and going to see momentum happen around that. And so we're excited for that. I also see that we're going to continue in our small business growth. Um, More entrepreneurial spirit coming out of the pandemic than I've ever seen before. And again, the office market is coming back strong. People are returning to work. Um, There will be shifts in office sizes and, you know, how people work, perhaps, but I also think at the end of this, we're going to be what Charlotte always has been, which is rebounding even bigger coming out of recessions. Um, so I, I have all optimistic outlooks on Charlotte and its momentum. Fabulous. Well, thank you again. That's Tracy Dodson, the Assistant City Manager and Economic Development Director for the City of Charlotte. My name is Abby Maloney. Thank you so much, Tracy. You've been listening to Invest Insights. Be sure to follow, rate, and review this podcast to hear more. I'm Abby Maloney. Thank you for tuning in.